Hello, and welcome back, or welcome to Asking for Myself, the podcast where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. Well, hopefully not for long. I'm your host, Mia Davis, the founder and CEO of Taboo, where we create content to empower you to have more fulfilling sex, strong and healthy relationships, and nurtured mental health. We've been on hiatus, but now we're back and better than ever. And thanks to my friends at Wave Enterprise, we now have a dedicated podcast team, so you can expect some consistency around here. If you're new to the podcast, lucky you, you've got four episodes to go back and listen to. In the meantime, let's get into today's episode. I'm really excited for today's discussion because I grew up in a pretty religious family and environment, aka the conservative Midwest. I attended a Lutheran school that included chapel on Wednesdays, youth group on Saturdays, Sunday school and church on Sundays, and religion class every weekday morning from preschool through eighth grade. Obviously, that's a lot of religion in my life and had a major influence on my values, beliefs, and sexuality-related shame. This made it pretty challenging to reconcile my totally natural desires with my beliefs and to turn off that little voice in my head, or not so little, telling me I was immoral, sinful, and wrong. But if you're here listening, and if you can relate, it's time to silence the noise and fully claim your sexual confidence. To help us with that aim, I am joined by Irma, the educator behind Dirty South Sex Ed, who, on a totally unrelated note, I have to say, has the most gorgeous curls I've possibly ever seen. Head to Instagram now. And, of course, award-winning sexuality educator and creator of the Purity Culture Dropout Program, Erica Smith. Both of these amazing educators have a background in providing comprehensive education and resources for both youth and adults, and tackling that oh-so-hard-to-shake religious-based sexual shame. So, without further ado, let's talk Taboo. Do each of you just want to start things off by introducing yourself and the work that you do? I'll go first. My name is Irma, and I am a case manager at James New Process, which is a nonprofit in Texas that helps young people get a judicial bypass for an abortion. And through that, I teach sex ed, and I am also the founder of Dirty South Sex Ed on Instagram, which is a platform to just spread sex ed info and pleasure specifically to folks in the South. Amazing. Erica? Yeah, I love hearing about your work with youth, Irma. So I'm a sex educator as well. And for a very long time, I worked specifically with youth involved in the juvenile justice system here in Philadelphia. So I did sex ed and like HIV prevention work with primarily young women and LGBTQ youth in detention. And I no longer work directly with that population, but I have taken a lot of the things I've learned and sort of turned it into a um, sex ed business primarily for adults who are looking for accurate sex ed after having been raised without it. And so a lot of my clients come from very conservative religious backgrounds. So the um, program I started is called Purity Culture Dropout. It's for people who did not get life-saving sex ed info information we all desperately need. So for me, I grew up attending a Lutheran school uh, for 11 years, which was five days a week of religion class and then chapel every Wednesday morning and then Sunday school and church on Sundays. And then in high school, uh, also had youth group, but I was at a public school at that point. So I definitely grew up with a lot of religion in my life. And only recently have I started to discover the ways in which it's impacted. I mean, I think I 
didn't realize it maybe subconsciously, but I've started to directly connect, you know, all of the shame that I grew up with and all of the things that I was taught, especially with an abstinence-based sex ed. And in college was sort of the first time that I remember taking a religious studies course and I actually was looking at religion as not as though it was like true or that it was something to be studied. And it was the first time I was like, oh, this is like a subject and this is something that can be looked at objectively or with different lenses as opposed to just like this is the truth and we're learning about the actual belief aspect of it. And so I guess as I've explored this for myself, I've realized and sort of coming across so much in the sex ed world, how much purity culture has had an impact on all of us and specifically people growing up, like you mentioned, Erica, in conservative and religious environments, and especially I can imagine as well in the South. So I guess to kick things off, can you provide either one of you a definition of what purity culture is and how it permeates society? Okay. Um, So I think that the shorthand definition of purity culture is a teaching that commonly occurs in religions that encourages sexual abstinence until marriage, but also comes with a lot of messaging about what sexuality is and how it is inherently sinful and how women in particular need to protect men from their temptation. And so I'm going to speak about this in really binary gendered language because that's the only genders recognized in purity culture is like cis men and cis women. And the idea is that once you are married in the eyes of God, you can have a, you can have a sex life, but until then you, you basically have to turn off everything about sexuality in your life. Some people take this as far as not even kissing before marriage. Some people take it as far as not holding hands before marriage. Other people just kind of find loopholes around technical virginity until marriage. Pretty culture in a nutshell, um, lots of shaming messages. And I often think of it as a spectrum as well. Even if you were not raised in a very strict religious environment, I think just in like American society and culture, we get purity culture just like baked into the fabric of like the moral values in this country. So that's, that's kind of the, the gist. And do you see any differences across religion, like the type of religion or are the same messages consistent more or less across different religions? That is a really good question. So I have worked with clients and been contacted by people who come from a variety of faith backgrounds. The majority of people are coming out of evangelical backgrounds or Southern Baptist backgrounds. But I also get people who are, there's a cat in my lap now, (laughs) Um, people who are raised Muslim or people who are raised in Orthodox Jewish religions. I've also had a lot of folks from non-denominational Christian backgrounds and people who come from religions that they describe as cults. And the General messaging is the same, but the way that the messaging is executed is different. So not all of those religions have people like signing pledges about their purity or um, even being so explicit about it. But the, the overall like message about virginity, especially for women, tends to remain constant. 
So as people start to um, unpack some of the shame and some of their beliefs related to sexuality, how do you recommend they even start doing that? Um, Like once you've realized, or even if you still are practicing faith and religion, how can people just get started on that journey of unpacking? I feel like you are the purity culture um, expert when it comes to that. I can speak from the more anecdotal side of things. And with the demographic that I help, it varies with religion, but most of um, the young people that I um, help are obviously battling with religion, shame, and slut shaming as well. Like, Per, like personal shame and then the whole slut shaming piece that like their friends probably know and the high schools that they're going to are like shaming them and blah, blah, blah. I was also raised um, evangelical and it was a very interesting environment because while I was raised in an evangelical church, it was still, my, my community was not evangelical. Um, I was raised in Southwest Houston. It was like still very hood, like, hey. And I would get the religious messaging at home and also from maybe folks that I knew in the community that probably went to the same church. Perception was it's everything, right, in religion like, or at least in Christianity. Like if your neighbor who goes to your church is also seeing you, like, talk to a boy, they're going to let your mom know. And then, like, the whole church knows. And before you know it, you're the slut of the church. Um, so more so in that sense where it's, like, perception was everything and yeah, if you were seen talking to the opposite sex, specifically, again, for cis girls being in a binary way, you were slut-shaped by your own family, by the adults in the community. You were already sexualized as a child, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later, or at some point it may come up where in religion, children are sexualized early on, and it has nothing to do with themselves. It's usually just the adult's talking about these things, right? And um, talking about sex and putting that on them. Like, if they're playing with the opposite sex, it's already, like, a no-no. Or, um, like, you couldn't even play house or doctor. I don't know if that was a thing with y'all. But (laughs) um, house and doctor were definitely, like, games that were a no-no because you may touch bodies and stuff like that. Coming from that lived experience, I relate to a lot of the young people that we serve which are coming from like poor backgrounds and religion is tied to things, but it's a mixture of everything of their family shaming them religiously, but also like societal messaging from other family members. I may not be religious, but also just using those, those values of you're not supposed to be having sex this young. If you are supposed to, if you are going to have sex, you have to have sex with a boy or um, if you become pregnant, you can't become pregnant as a teen. If you do become pregnant, you can't get an abortion either. It, it is very much an intersection of a lot of things. Apart from trying to help them dissect the religious shame and the personal trauma that they're dealing with in the communities, it's also trying to, um, I'm also trying to like add in pleasure, like this piece of that, yeah, this piece that isn't talked about in church, right? If you do have sex 
Maybe some people will tell you, like, don't worry, like, it's going to feel good, but until you get married, you're supposed to do it until you're married. But it's maybe, like, a few people. Like, I remember having maybe, like, one or two adults tell me, like, tell me about pleasure, but still in the married context. But almost everyone, yeah, like, literally everyone at church didn't talk about that. And it was always within the context of, like, it's sex is only to reproduce. And that's it. Like, people with uteruses were only vessels at this point and that was essentially like it that was the as far as the talk went like you aren't supposed to have sex you aren't supposed to masturbate either because it's it's shameful like you can't touch yourself at all like and if you have lustful thoughts you have to pray immediately (laughs) to you know get those devils out of your mind and probably y'all can speak to these things too, but all of those layers of religion would then just make you feel like, okay, well then is sex, like there's a lot of pressure being put on you to not have sex, but like, what is this? It, it makes it seem like sex is this magical, like secret key that can unlock Narnia, which it can but more so it's like, it's not that big of a deal, you know? It's like something natural, something that humans do. But like in religion, it's just like blown out of proportion, I believe sometimes to the point where like children are hypersexualized, uh, pleasure is taking out of it. People are objectified to just vessels and perception is everything in the church. If you are seen close to someone that you're not married to, it's already a big deal. Um, if you aren't walking in the path of righteousness or purity, you're already like a Jezebel. There's so many layers to, to this conversation that I think we'll probably talk on, talk, talk about later. And at this point, I think I'm renting because this is like so passionate. I'm passionate about this, but yeah. <laughs> it's definitely multi-layered. I think that it's, it's just like you said, it touches on so many different things and all these different things we're learning. And as you were talking about it, I was just reminded of so many different things and thinking about everything. And I guess this is perhaps a loaded question and I'm sure I don't even know where to begin, but some of the things you were talking about, Irma, with children being sexualized and even in in terms of having purity pledges and things like that, it's kind of a very weird concept. And even what you're saying with the obsession. It's like, why, why are we so obsessed with kids waiting to have sex? I mean, I guess I can see the aspect of like making sure you're safe and making sure you are, you know, you know, your body, but that's not the conversations that are being had. Of course, it's not about how to be health and have like healthy and have pleasure and have, you know, mutually satisfying experiences with respect and communication. It's about waiting until marriage for the purpose of ownership or the purpose of commitment in a way that's obviously um, in the binary sense seen very differently for men than women. Um, And so where do you think this obsession comes from and how do leaders justify some of the messaging around these topics that seem like very bizarre if you just look at them objectively, like with a little bit of distance. I feel like I'm just going to go right to the top here. (laughs) I'm like, the whole thing is about like patriarchal control 
and white supremacist patriarchal control, um, even like to break it down more clearly. I feel like purity culture coming from churches, it masquerades as wanting to protect people. Like they're like, we don't want you to, you know, we don't want you to get a broken heart. We don't want you to get an STI. We don't want you to, you know, have an unintended pregnancy. They make it sound like it's this coming from an area of concern. And like, it really did start to reach, it really got rolling during the years where like AIDS was a new topic. And like, it was considered like that we were in crisis as a country over the the AIDS epidemic. So there's that lens that it, it looks, you know, it maybe looks from the outside, like this is supposed to protect young people, but it boils down to systems of control. And so many of the folks that I've talked to have, you know, even once you say you do save yourself, quotes, until marriage, um, even within that marriage, then there are rules about how a woman is supposed to act. And for a lot of them, they are taught that, like, you have to be sexually available to your husband at all times. So that means, like, you lose your agency. Not that you had any anyway in this relationship, but, like, you don't even have the agency to say no or to assert your pleasure. I feel like there's there's been a newer spin on purity culture where, like, you know, the, the pastors will talk about, you'll have hot sex once you're married. But I mean, even more folks that I talk to have been raised to just be like, you don't do it. And then you're married and you can, and you have to always say yes. So it just, I mean, if you just like look at all of the aspects of it, I feel like it's only ever about keeping women in a subservient role always. And, you know, giving men so much more allowance and then completely ignoring the existence of non-binary and queer people. So, yeah. I would also say to add to to that, sometimes we have been told that that's just how God wants it. You don't even get an explanation sometimes. It's just even like you're just not supposed to have sex because God said it period. And you're just left with so many questions then at this point, right? Um, Okay, well, if God is supposed to be this like, quote unquote, fatherly loving figure, and you you want to please this, like you're, you're indoctrinated to believe that this person is, this higher being is here to protect you, that you are, if you follow all of his rules and if you walk in the right path and everything, God is going to protect you. Like you're going to have a good partner that if you save yourself, you know, your life is going to be amazing after that. And no one ever really like gives you a full explanation as to like why God chose that. And I always found that interesting. It's not necessarily um, like there isn't necessarily a reason other than what Erica said, control. It's like, who decided to control us? And that's been something that patri- like patriarchal culture has existed before the Bible was a thing, you know? And so taking it back all the way to the beginning of time where there were more uh, monarchies, monarchies, matriarchal, like, which one is the one that's opposite of patriarchy? <laughs> matriarchal, matriarchy, Matriarch- I guess. Yes. Um, like history shows that like we 
been the original like rules like were folks um, being ruled by women, and then at this, at, at then at some random point, it flipped to patriarchal rule. And so I've always just found that interesting of like how women were also erased throughout this, and like made it seem to the point of like God has existed from the beginning of time, the Bible has existed from the beginning of time, and that's actually not true. And I think at that point, like, you get this realization as well that, like, whoa, a lot of the things that I've been indoctrinated with aren't necessarily true. They're more stories to talk about ethics and morals and stuff like that, but not necessarily a rule book, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to add that, that sometimes like you don't even get an explanation (laughs) I have one thing to add. Um, are either of you familiar with Nadia Bowles Weber? She is a Lutheran minister and very, very radical. And she wrote a book called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. It came out a couple years ago. And she takes the scripture that people use to be oppressive about sex and points out that that's actually not what was being said at all. She also finds ways to make sex appear to be like a very beautiful thing. She has her own church in Denver and it's like fully welcoming. It's very social justice oriented. She like marries and ordains queer and trans people. Like it's, she's, she's really awesome. And um, if, so for anyone who's listening, who is like, I'm a Christian and I do want to, you know, find ways to reconcile sexuality and Christianity. Like her book is incredible because she does that in a way that, you know, she takes direct quotes from the Bible and uses them in a really different way. That's amazing. I definitely do have a question about that later. If you grew up with religion or any type of sexual shame, I'm guessing you didn't have the best intro to sex toys. And if you did, be sure to count your blessings. I remember joining a group project in college where we had to explore the history of sex toys, and I legit left the group because I thought it was too inappropriate. My, have we come a long way. I wanted to make sure our sponsorships aligned with the mission of this podcast, to educate, empower, and answer your taboo questions. One of those questions being, how do I find the right sex toy? So we've asked our friends at Honey Playbox to help us help you. Honey Playbox is a pleasure products company run by a group of sex educators, queer meme queens, and toy connoisseurs passionate about bringing inclusive values to the adult industry. Honey Playbox believes that exploration and education are necessary for positive experiences of sexuality and that prioritizing pleasure starts with versatile toys. We ask listeners to write into us for a personalized sex toy recommendation. So let's get into it. Today, we're helping Sophie who wrote in, I'm really interested in exploring squirting. So I'm looking for toys that can stimulate internally but I also like the idea of stimulating the clitoris simultaneously. So a toy that reaches the G-spot or G-spot and clit would be lovely. On theme with today's episode, Sophie, your recommendation is Honey Playbox's Angel. With Angel, you've got options. Whether you start off with one sensation or all three that Angel provides, there's a function for you in the Angel. The silicone tip encompasses the sensitive clitoris, providing both suction and licking patterns to send you over the edge. You'll also enjoy internal vibration and patented G-spot tapping sensations. Honey Playbox offers unique and affordable toys made from body-safe materials, and their team is always available to find the perfect toy for you. 
And right now, you can get 25% off your purchase with the coupon code TABU. That's T-A-B-U. Honey Playbox, where sexual wellness meets play. So Irma, I think the first time I came across the term pleasure mapping was somewhere in your content. So can you talk a little bit about what pleasure mapping is? And then expanding on that, how can people, particularly people with vulvas or conditioned as women, become more comfortable with masturbation? Um, As you were mentioning earlier, that masturbation is definitely not prioritized for women or seen as a normal thing that women do. Yeah, those are all amazing questions. Pleasure mapping is essentially a method of figuring out, well, mapping in general is a method of trying to figure out a timeline, right? So if we're talking about pleasure, we would essentially timeline when was the first experience of pleasure that you had and then going from there all the way to the present. But you can map anything, right? You can do trauma mapping, which is something that a lot of therapists do, where going from your first trauma experience to the present and whatever you can't remember is just more so of like figuring out this timeline of like big events and later on if you journal the smaller events that happen in between each of the big ones. Essentially, pleasure mapping does the same, but it keeps the script to like, let's talk about pleasure. However, yeah, with pleasure, you can have trauma attached to some of those experiences as well. But all of that's valid, right? Like you're trying to figure out like what your relationship with whatever it is that you're creating a timeline for is. So essentially for pleasure, I always like folks to like talk about the first time they experience pleasure usually everyone not not absolutely everyone but most people experience pleasure when they're in elementary school which is common because it's one of those things of like young either if you're a toddler or a kid like you're exploring your body but you're not necessarily knowing that this is called masturbation it's just more so of like sensations like oh you see a hand oh I have a hand and then this hand is like somewhere else and at some point, parts of your body feel good, and that's essentially something that you remember. And until someone tells you that what you're doing is quote-unquote wrong, you start realizing that certain things that you do with your body are pleasurable, right, or bring you joy or whatever. So we usually start off with that and move all the way into the present until we figure out like how that relationship has changed and it's a great way to figure out how your relationship with pleasure has changed from the moment that you were told that it was shameful to now where you're trying to unlearn a lot of the things that you were socialized or indoctrinated with so that's essentially what pleasure mapping is and it's a great I I think of it more of a journaling type of method like I think it's a great way to just journal those experiences and trying to heal from them is also important if they um, have any trauma attached to that. Because in, yeah, like like we were saying earlier in church, talking about masturbation and self-pleasure isn't really a thing. And essentially it's because any lustful thought is a no-no, but also like sex is reserved just for you and your partner, specifically your husband, right? So you are not necessarily for yourself either. Like you don't belong to yourself. That's essentially it. 
you know, your body belongs to your husband slash God because that is the head of the household, right? And essentially your husband is like the human portrayal of God because he was given the quote-unquote, divine, right? um, Before that, before that, it's supposed to be your father, which is incredibly, (laughs) there's a lot to unpack there. Exactly. So, um, with being told, like, no, masturbation is wrong, you can't even do that, and I'm not sure, like, if y'all have seen, most likely Erica has seen posts, religious posts I've seen on Facebook where it's like, an ex-masturbator and uh from like christian churches or like christian organizations or it's like they they wear shirts versus ex-masturbator I'm like, oh God. <laughs> um where also folks are trying to like convert people as um convert folks who are LG- part of the lgbtq community so like you can not be that in god so like if if you are gay and if you're trying to follow God, like, we can help you not be gay. If you're masturbating, we can help you not masturbate. And so before you know it, you have people in church who are over here proclaiming like ex-bisexual, ex-gay man, ex-gay woman, ex-masturbator. And all of these things, I don't even know what the word is. It's just mind-blowing sometimes. And you already have this messaging that the church is giving you, like, that you can't touch your body, and if you do, it's shameful. And you have these feelings attached to that that is just, I at least for me and for folks who I've spoken to, like, we have had so much shame attached to masturbating that, like, there were times when I was younger and I would masturbate, I would go pray right after because I felt so bad, and I would sometimes palm is God I'm like okay okay if um like please help me like I won't masturbate like I'm, I'm gonna give it like a month you know like for a month I'm not gonna masturbate and stuff like that definitely stays with you because it's all of this shame that you're being told that you're not supposed to do literally a million things that humans naturally do and releasing all of that shame is part of the journey and part of the process that is essentially something that could be lifelong because healing is a journey and not a goal like I'm sure all of us know so there are times that even now if I have a self-pleasure moment like randomly not all the time I think thankfully (laughs) the unlearning is, is happening where like the shame isn't necessarily there but there will be random times where like I'll remember what I was told and I will wonder I'm like and if in, in my personal like spiritual journey I don't identify as Christian or not that I don't believe in God but I just don't believe in the whole idea of all of that so sometimes in those moments I'm just like what if there is a God <laughs> and like I'm scared <laughs> but yeah I think that was a long-winded way of answering your question about pleasure mapping and masturbation. I have, um, I, I mean, what you just said, like resonates so much with the stories that I hear from people. I worked with a woman once who said that when she was a kid, she discovered masturbation and she loved it. She didn't know what she was doing, but she knew it felt good. And then she had a youth group leader years later 
tell them all how bad it was. And she could not reconcile that the nice, pleasurable thing she did in bed privately as, at night was the same thing that this youth group leader was talking about because he made it sound so completely evil and wrong. And she's like, wait a minute, that that nice thing I do is this? Like, And it was like a whole like mind-blowing moment for her. So it's like, we plant that shit in people's brains. Like, you know, nobody grows up in inherently thinking masturbation is sinful unless, until you tell them that. And so I think one of the important things for people coming out of purity culture is that if you're raising children, don't do that to them as well. You know, don't perpetuate that cycle. So like if you see your kid touching themselves, let them touch themselves. Um, you know, maybe tell them to do it in private, but definitely do not instill that shame early because if we don't tell people it's bad, then they're good, you know? Yeah, everything you were saying was very honestly validating for me because I remember when I was growing up as well, I would, you know, get turned on watching a TV show or just anything. And then I would start masturbating, which I obviously didn't know the term for at the time. And I just thought I was like possessed. I thought I was a demon. I thought that I thought that I was going to injure myself like to like I thought that I was doing something wrong and I had no idea. And I don't really remember being told it was explicitly wrong because I didn't even know what masturbation was. I just know that I felt I really thought I was doing something wrong and I thought I was just so weird. So I guess with all that being said, and as you were mentioning, Irma, with like trauma coming up as you're exploring pleasure and how you're trying to reconcile this shame that you grew up with things that you believed For each of you, would you say that it's recommended to work with a sex therapist, coach, or educator, or obviously that's not necessarily accessible for everybody. So how can people kind of start to reconcile these things and deal with this, explore pleasure in a healthy, positive way, either with the help of someone or perhaps, you know, without? Um, So... In my work, I, I am not a trained clinician. I have a education degree. So when I work with people, it's like education and coaching. And I will find that people, that the work that I do with people is often really complemented by therapy and goes hand in hand with therapy. The thing that's tricky is that anyone who is trained as a therapist, whether you get a MSW or a master of family therapy or like a psych degree, there's not a lot of sexuality content in those graduate programs. It's like a serious lack of it. So I know that people who get degrees to be therapists and clinicians don't get a lot of training in sexuality. So if you get a MSW, an MFT, or even like a psychology doctorate, there's not a lot of intentional sexuality information in those programs unless you seek it out. I have a client right now who is a psychologist and she told me that she got like 30 minutes of training around sexuality in her graduate program. So I feel like trauma therapy can be very important for people who have a lot of difficulty and if they have like trauma in their like pleasure mapping journey, trauma in their life. But if they really want to do work around sexuality, it's probably going to be more helpful to seek out a sex therapist or a sex educator or a sex coach, like somebody who has the specific training in sexuality topics because the average therapist might not. 
And I think the only thing I would add to that, because um, all of that was like literally on point, for folks that can get to sex therapy or, or anything like that, I am a big believer in the way to dispel stigma is simply by talking about it. So if you can have, um, if, if you do have a community where you feel safe and can talk about anything, talk about it with your friends, talk about it with family members or trusted folks in your life. See how their experiences with sex are. Like, what is their relationship with it? How did they grow up around it? And little by little, your people are going to realize that they're not alone. And this journey is something that a lot of us go through. And a lot of us receive the same messaging or almost the same messaging. So, like, being able to help one another through all of that is amazing because community support is everything. So besides, yeah, like reading, working with a sex sex therapist or a sex educator, I do love that there's this new wave of sex education platforms on social media because now social media is accessible by mostly everyone. And whether they are on Instagram or Facebook or on TikTok, it's reaching all demographics in, in age groups. So I love that. I love that while it's, while one post cannot give you all of the education that you need, it is a great starting point to spark something in order to like to navigate whatever you're feeling, to explore whatever is coming up whenever you're reading a post or you're learning something new. It's worth exploring that. It's worth journaling about it. It's worth talking to friends, community about it. And before you know it, you are realizing that you're probably going to be the sex educator in your group. That is such a good point. I I love the rise of sex education on social media because it does make it so accessible. And a lot of the, those of us that are on there also offer, you know, sometimes we offer classes and support groups and I see like webinar offerings all the time. So even if like you don't have therapy money or insurance, like maybe every once in a while you'll find like a sliding scale sex ed class or something like that offered by someone on social media. Love that. Uh, Definitely. I think that social media now there's such a, which of course has to be navigated in a way that's informed because everyone on the internet has different ideas of things and, and people, even with credentials, like you were saying earlier, Erica, just because you have credentials in something doesn't necessarily mean you have the right training or the right tools to talk about certain topics. Or even if you do, everyone's got different opinions and different backgrounds and understandings of things. So yeah, navigate the internet with your own values, I guess, attached and try to find people that align with those values. Ready to change the game for your sex life? Use more lube. Yeah, that's right, lube. And not just any lube. Coconut's 100% natural, cruelty-free, hypoallergenic, and edible lube. Yum. Whether you're 19 or 99, lube is going to be an asset in upping your pleasure game. The wetter, the better. And no, there's nothing wrong with not being naturally super wet. WAPs are not universal. I used to hate lube because it was sticky and sometimes even stung. What is the point? Turns out, a lot of lubricants are actually not created with ingredients that should be anywhere near your genitals. Who goes into your body is just as important as what goes into or onto your body. Since starting Taboo, I've learned a lot about lube. 
here's what you need to know. You want to avoid petrochemicals, parabens, glycerin, and fragrances, and instead opt for natural ingredients. Coconut was the first company to produce a coconut oil-based lubricant that is USDA certified organic. If you are opting for organic in the grocery aisle, you better be opting for organic for your genitals, okay? Coconut also donates a portion of its proceeds to the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance to help in the fight against cancer. How amazing is that? Head to coconut.com and grab yourself a bottle using code T-A-B-U, taboo, for 15% off. I can already confidently say, you're welcome. Switching gears just a little bit, I know that for me, a big topic that I had to do a lot of my own reflection on and a total shift in my attitude toward was abortion. And that was one of the biggest topics for me that was really challenging to kind of rethink. So both of you, I know, have worked in abortion education and care. So how does abortion fit into this entire conversation? What are some of the myths and misconceptions related to abortion? And then Erica, I know that you've written about, I believe I wrote this down. I don't even know when I wrote this down, but (laughs) about abortion as a political strategy catalyzed by white evangelicals in 1979. So I just want to get into this very heavily debated politically charged topic. And if each of you want to talk about different aspects of like, why are we so obsessed with abortion as a topic? Where do these ideas come from? And then um, just accessing care in general. I'll just start with with the info you shared about um, white evangelicals in the 70s, just to like lay that out there as to why this is even such a thing. And I feel like when people learn this, they feel kind of betrayed. <laughs> that's like, you know, because because abortion, if, if you were somebody born like in the 80s or later, it feels like our whole lives, everyone has been against abortion, right? It's just the natural Christian thing. It's the view that all Christians have, the view that all Catholics have, blah, blah, blah. And that's not actually the truth. If you dig a little bit further back into history, it turns out that like Catholics did not always define life as beginning at conception and other denominations within Christianity didn't either. But in the late 70s, some powerful men in the white evangelical church decided that they needed to mobilize their base politically to win seats in government and to, you know, this is a repercussion that we are still dealing with now. Um, You know, one of the outcomes of that decades later was the Trump administration. So like white evangelicals began to amass political power. And the way they did that is that at a conference or a meeting, a handful of men actually sat down and decided, what are the topics that we're going to get people worked up about? One was abortion and one was homosexuality. And thus began what, you know, when I think about the repercussions that this decision has had on the like culture and the lives of millions of people, it like gets me so hot. Like, so that's where it started. That is why abortion became such a central issue. And then that is why it seems so natural of a, of a like religious issue at this point, all because of that. Irma, I guess you want to talk about some of the myths related to abortion and some of the concerns people have when it comes to abortion? Yeah. So usually most 
Or the most popular myth is that if you have an abortion, you won't be able to have kids anymore. Another one is if you have an abortion, you will go to hell. <laughs> it ranges from a medical myth to a personal, like religious myth of like abortion is, is murder, is killing. So because you're killing, essentially, you're a murderer, essentially, you're going to hell. Because the teachings that I received was one of the Ten Commandments is do not kill, and abortion is essentially seen as that in the Christian church. So to take it a little further, there are even some denominations where even birth control is a sin because it's preventing fertilization, it's preventing life, all of that. So there's there's that. And then the ones that I get, the questions that I usually get asked from young people is usually like, will I be kids later? Will, like, am I going to have a scar? Am I going to get cut open? Because essentially when we think of abortion in society, society has made it seem like this back alley, like dark room that some stranger who's messing like a, messing as a doctor is the one who's like doing it, which is, um, which is now a myth, but essentially where that came from was also before abortion was legalized, people were getting back alley abortions because that was the only thing that was accessible. So unfortunately that also came that, that, that also like basically traveled through decades where if you have an abortion, people automatically think, oh, you're going to go to some back alley doctor where, where it's like, no, it's, a, it's legal now. And a lot of people actually do not know that abortion is legal. I, I did not learn that abortion was actually legal until I was in college. And that was probably because of my sheltered lifestyle in the church. But um, whenever I talk to folks, whenever I talk to the teens that I work with, a lot of them didn't even know that it was legal still. So this is something that is still happening to this day where like abortion is still seen with these daunting eyes of like something that is done in a back alley and it's scary and you're probably not going to come out of it alive. It's just so much trauma attached to it. And to not minimize the folks who have had traumatic experiences with abortion, I do think it is important to talk about the the things that are missed and the things that were created from like this religious standpoint where, yeah, it, there, there is like this, the smallest of risks, but going to the dentist to get your wisdom teeth removed has a higher risk than getting an abortion. So whenever people do talk to me about risks, I always just tell them like, anything in life has risks. You riding a bike is risky. You driving your car is risky. So literally anything can happen, but getting an abortion cannot be the safest thing that you possibly can do when it comes to medical procedures, right? So I I think that those would be like the top ones. Erica, do you know of any other ones that I'm missing? I completely agree that those are the top ones. Another one that's coming to mind is just the idea of who gets an abortion. I feel like people always are able to other like they other the people that get abortions, like sex workers get abortions and sluts get abortions and, you know, women with no morals get abortions when in reality, um, <laughs> I'm sure Irma can back this up, but it's literally every kind of reproductive 
Every person on the planet with a uterus is the kind of person that gets an abortion. During my time working in clinics, I saw very young teens to women who were about to go through menopause and were like, fuck, I'm a grandma. I can't have a baby. I'm like 46. There were devout Muslim women that came in for procedures that were like fully garbed. There were Christian and Catholic women that came in for procedures. And when they would be in the office, they would often say, just so you know, I don't believe in this. I, I, like they were worried that like we as the staff were going to judge them. You know, there would be college girls and single moms and moms that already had kids at home. I would say most of the people that I remember supporting through the procedure had kids already and they would talk about their kids. Um, we, you know, we would hold their hands as they were going through the procedure, which by the way is, like Irma said, it is an quick thing. It's like a 10 minute long thing, but they would often talk to us about their other babies. So I feel like a huge myth is like, who are the people that are getting these? They're your, they're your mom, they're your girlfriends, they're your, your aunties and your sisters and your neighbors and the ladies at your church. Like it really is every kind of person. Yeah. Research shows that now it's one in four folks with uteruses have an abortion that we that it is possible that we know someone in our life that already that had an abortion and we just haven't talked about it that we don't know because it could be our mom it could be our aunt someone that we love right and I think to back up what Erica said and I love that stat that yeah parents folks who are parents are the ones who have um abortions the most that is the demographic of people who have abortions so it's not the teens that people think that are like the the um, slutty ones or like the slutty college students or the single girls that are like having sex with whoever they want. It's folks who are already parents. I remember learning that, I think just a couple of years ago, what you just said about the majority of abortions being by people who already have kids. And that was so eye-opening to me because I do think that we have this messaging that it's, irresponsible teenagers or, you know, unmarried people and when in reality, and and it doesn't really matter, but I think it kind of brings new light to the conversation about the fact that this isn't because you are irresponsible or uninformed or being reckless or sleeping around. It's just something that happens and an option that you have if you don't want to have children or give birth for any number of reasons. Just regarding teenagers who want to access birth control, emergency contraception, and or abortion care, do teenagers need, I guess, what do they need to know? Do they need their parents' consent? How much do things cost? Where can they go? And then also, I know I learned about crisis pregnancy centers or something like that and how obviously you need to avoid those, but I didn't even know what those were. So like, how can you avoid those? Basically, what does a person need to know? A teenager specifically or younger people who don't know like how to access anything, but also that's a lot of people. So, yeah, I, I can tackle the, um, for the, the, the question where it says how teens can access reproductive health care services. So there are some states that require parental consent whenever you get birth control or abortion. So it's important to first figure out what the requirement in your state is unfortunately most states do have a parental consent or parental notification requirement 
parental notification is when you can get the birth control, but your parents are still going to get notified by the doctor. And then parental consent is when you basically need your parents' signature to get the birth control. And in the cases that none of those things are possible, if you do want birth control and you don't want to talk to your parents about it, Title 10 clinics are the place to go. And if you type in Google title and then the letter X and the clinics, clinic locator should pop up. And you basically just put your zip code in there and it populates all of the clinics that um, are near you. It does take some calling around to see who has a fast appointment, who is aware about Title 10 funding because people at these clinics are not always up to date about these things. And so it does require some advocacy on your part. And the folks that I work with, I always instruct them and I always like coach them on like, how to advocate for themselves whenever they're making their doctor's appointment because probably because most of them have never probably made a doctor's appointment in their life. So um, talking to them about like, okay, if you say your name, you say you're a teen and that you're trying to access birth control through Title 10 funding um, because you're not trying to get parents consent. And if they don't know what you're talking about, ask to speak to the manager and just keep calling to different clinics until you get someone to schedule you. Sometimes it does take a little bit of manpower for that. And then um, for emergency contraception, you actually don't need to be 18 to access that. And it's actually cheaper at your local grocery store or on Amazon if you are on Amazon. Um, my way is $10 on Amazon and you can get it sent to whatever location you want. If you can't get it sent to your house. I always tell folks that there's Amazon lockers available or sending it to a different address like your friends or your boyfriends or a trusted adult's address is, is a good way to access those things. But at least in Texas, there are certain grocery stores that have it cheaper than pharmacies. And then if you go to your local abortion clinic, they always have plan B for like half the price, like 20 to $25. Planned Parenthood has it for $25 and local abortion clinics may have it for 20 But it's usually harder to get folks to go to an abortion clinic, again, because of that shame. But if you got no shame, you can get it for the low. <laughs> but yeah, that would be um, how to access birth control and emergency contraception if you're a young person. And oh, and for abortion, if um, you also live in a state where parental consent or parental notification is required, you can always talk to your local clerk, which is the, well, that requires like like a whole government lesson but you can always just google like judicial bypass in your state a judicial bypass is essentially the the term that describes what is needed to get an abortion without parental consent and it's essentially like paperwork i always find it as a permission slip from a judge which sucks because essentially it's like the government having um control over your body right literally so some states allow where the team can just go up to the courthouse and talk to their local clerk and they file their application that way and they get in and they get a lawyer appointed then and there and talk to a judge right after. There are some other states where it's way harder to access these things and so you need to have an actual lawyer that you found yourself or an organization helping you get through the process. And that's what James Process does in Texas because it's a lot harder to access these things if you were to go yourself to the courthouse. But, yeah, 
I think those are all three. <laughs> so I'll take the crisis pregnancy center question. So crisis pregnancy centers are small organizations or small little outfits run by churches or religious nonprofits. And they usually very intentionally set up physically near an abortion clinic in Philadelphia, downtown, we have a Planned Parenthood surgical center on one corner, and directly across the street, we have a crisis pregnancy center that looks to the average person who doesn't know that it might be the place you're going for an abortion. So example is um, one of the young women I worked with who was in the juvenile justice system she was pregnant and she did not want to be pregnant anymore. And she walked into that place. Other, She walked into that place, not the Planned Parenthood. And they told her that she was too far along for an abortion, which was a complete lie. And she ended up carrying the pregnancy to term because she thought she had been told by an expert that she was too late, which was not the case. So a lot of times they are in the phone book, phone book, I, look, listen to me sound like I'm a million years old. <laughs> I can remember them being literally in the phone book next to the abortion listing. But like if you would Google, I'm pregnant, Philadelphia, sometimes those are going to be the first things that come up on the search. So they, they specifically make themselves confusing to get people to come in so then they can push like a anti-choice agenda on them. And they'll often say things like, we can help you with adoption. We can help you raise your baby. And like, I do not know truly to what ends they can help people. There was a movie that came out a couple years ago about a young girl in Pennsylvania who tries to get an abortion. And she first goes to one of these clinics and it was or one of these organizations. It, the movie's called something like Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's a good movie. It's one of the most realistic depictions of abortion for like a teenager that I've ever seen. But yeah, that's the that's their whole thing is to confuse you, to make you think that you are coming in for medical help and options, but really they have an agenda, which is to steer you away from abortion. And often they do that with like completely false like, you know, intentionally false information. So is there any way to like identify these or know once you're, let's say you're in them, what can you look for to know whether or not this is a legit place? Usually they always offer free pregnancy tests and free ultrasound. So unfortunately, abortion, real abortion clinics do not offer free ultrasounds and Possibly, maybe pregnancy tests, but for sure, ultrasounds um, cost money at an actual abortion clinic. So if you go anywhere that it's free, there's some suspicion to be had. That is such. Uh, I'm glad you added that. Um, I remember, like sometimes we would tell people, like, you, if you need a free abortion or need a free pregnancy test and you can't get one, like you could go to this place, but know that they have an agenda and know that they're going to try to convince you to like make a specific choice. And and it is hard to identify them because even if you're there and you ask like, hey, are you a religious organization? They're probably not going to tell you. So yeah, I would, I mean, I'm thinking like, it is, it is intentionally really difficult. And what Irma said is probably 
one of the easiest ways to tell if it's real or if it's, you know, a religious organization, but, but they make themselves look real on purpose. And that's just, it's so difficult. Well, I definitely learned a lot with that. I think it's, it's unimaginable how difficult it sounds to, especially if you are a teenager, to access reproductive care for yourself, if you don't want to involve your parent. And, you know, I think it's incredible that people are doing a lot of work in the advocacy department of things, but it's really sad and and eye-opening that this is just so challenging. I guess on a final note, I won't keep you guys forever, even though I have a million questions. I guess let me just ask one more question if you have a second. So my last question is just, and it's it's a bit of a loaded one. You touched on this for a second earlier, Erica, but um, and you can also just direct people to resources if that's if that's easier and faster. But for people who are trying to reconcile, whether it's parents who are raising, you know, kids in a particular faith or religion or people who still are practicing, but trying to navigate religion alongside pleasure and sexuality and having a you know healthy relationship with their body. How can people, how would you recommend going about that? Can you be religious and also sex positive at the same time? You can totally be religious and sex positive at the same time. I I think that there, there are a couple like pillars of sex positivity that I look out for. One is, do you believe that sexuality is like a normal, healthy part of life? Do you believe that people have the right to engage in the kind of sexual practices that they want to, regardless of whether it's something that you personally enjoy. Those things, I'm like, if if you believe those, then you don't have to have any kind of certain sex to be sex positive. You can be somebody who is not sexually active. You can be somebody who's never had sex before and still be sex positive. So I often point to the work of sex positive families around this. So you're probably both very familiar with uh, Melissa and her org because I know they're Austin based as well. Um, But just such incredible work helping families raise children free of sexual shame and raising children to understand that sexuality is a completely normal part of their lives. So I um, think that that their work and the work of their org is, is really valuable in this area too. And um, to add a resource about pleasure, I would suggest folks, I would love for folks to read Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. It's a great text to kind of start off with to begin exploring your own values of a lot of things that um, folks find pleasurable but have been shamed by society from doing drugs to having orgies, literally everything in between. It's it's definitely a great way to just explore that. So if reading is, is, is a thing that y'all are interested in, I would suggest folks to read that book. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for sharing all your wisdom and insights and having these conversations and doing all the work that you do, obviously. Where can people find you? And if people wanted to work with you, what options do they have? People can find me at Sex Ed with Irma on Instagram. And I don't offer any, I, I don't have any offerings for people to work with me yet. I I think all of my emotional bandwidth is given to my James at James Street Process. But for sex ed info and pleasure info, you can find it on my Instagram page. 
I completely relate to what you said about all of your energy going to the the teens in your life. It's it's like it's huge work to do that work. So I love when I get to talk to people who are still like dedicated to the the teenagers. So I can be found. My primary home is Instagram. My account name is Erica Smith Sex Ed. My website is purityculturedropout.com. And I do individual sessions with folks. Um, every once in a while, I enroll like a cohort of people for a support group for queer folks who are raised in purity culture or for intensive one-on-one um, education. And I also have some more casual offerings, like a workbook for people to define their own sexual values and some like live recordings of sex ed classes that they can watch. So yeah. Awesome. I know you also have a book um, for parents, right? Sex Q&A. Yes. Um, I love that you remember that <laughs> and I completely forgot to plug it. <laughs> I collaborated with a friend of mine, Erin Brown, who is a parent, which I am not. And we came up with a book where she takes questions actually asked by one of by her child and she gives her parent answer and then I give like a sex educator sort of backup. Like this is why her answer is great. And this is the kind of stuff you should know at that age. So yeah, it's called sex Q and a, and that can also be found by going to my website or my Instagram. Thank you, Mia. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Are there, were there ever any questions you didn't think were good answers <laughs> or, or not so much can't publish it like that. <laughs> uh, all of her answers were great, which is why we collabed like, fully sex positive queer mom with with lots of um great info so there were times that i would like edit the answers a little but i was never like this is trash <laughs> awesome I, that was just my personal question i'm not <laughs> no that's that. a anyway. great question <laughs> <laughs> thanks for tuning in and hey what are you going to ask for yourself this week head to our instagram at asking for myself that's with the number four and or talk taboo to share what you've learned and what questions you have Catch you next time.